Have your Bibles open once again to Luke chapter 23, page 1059 there in your Bibles, and have that before you as we take a look particularly at verses 1 to 12 this morning of Luke 23. Those of you who are perhaps new to the faith, or uh, in fact some of the children in the back, I wonder if you have heard of the Apostles' Creed. What is a creed? A creed is something that captures what it is that we believe that Scripture teaches. So when we say the creed, we are saying back in a condensed form, what the Bible teaches us. And the Apostles' Creed is one of those creeds, which is very simple, and we confess that we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And one of those lines in the Apostles' Creed says this. It says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Who is Pontius Pilate? And how on earth did he make it into one of the oldest creeds of the Christian church. Well, in our text this morning, we are shown just why it is that we affirm of our Lord Jesus in that creed that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. In fact, we see that Jesus, our mediator, suffered intensely even before he went to the cross. Jesus suffered in the leap to be nailed to the cross at the crucifixion. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. In the end of chapter 22, just before what we're focusing on this morning, in verses 63 to 65, you'll see there that Jesus has been mocked. He has been made fun of. He's been beaten. And he's been blindfolded. From chapter 22, verse 66 onward, which Adrian read for us, Jesus is falsely tried, accused, interrogated, treated with humiliating contempt, first by the Sanhedrin, then by Pilate, and then by Herod and his soldiers. So we see that Jesus suffers. Yes, he will suffer the agony of the crucifixion later, but already here he suffers, and he suffers under Pontius Pilate. This morning, we're going to ask ourselves what it is that Luke chapter 23 teaches us about the suffering of Jesus under Pilate and how that might encourage us and help us to understand more deeply the faith that we cling to in the Lord Jesus. Before we do that further, would you bow your heads with me and let's just pray once more. So, Father, as we hear your word, we ask for the help of your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that these words would be your very own, that they would pierce our hearts, that they would raise us up to you, and that they would point us to the Lord Jesus more clearly, in whose name we ask it. Amen. Well, in chapter 22, verse 66, we're also told something very interesting that helps to set the stage for our understanding of what's going on in chapter 23 and the suffering of Jesus. We're told that the Jewish assembly, the Jewish leaders who gather together are an assembly gathering against Jesus. And by the time we reach the other side of our passage this morning, in chapter 23, verse 13, we see that Pilate gathers together 
the chief priests and rulers of the people once again. There is a gathering together on both ends of our text. A gathering together of human rulers against the Lord Jesus. In opposition to the Lord Jesus. Jerusalem rulers, a Jewish tetrarch named Herod, and a Roman ruler named Pilate. All gathered and united against Jesus. Jesus, who is called with mockery and malice in verse 2 of our text, the Christ, that is, a king. There are some Old Testament rumblings that begin to reverberate as we come to this passage, therefore, as human rulers gather together against the Lord's Christ. In fact, it ought to remind us of what we hear in Psalm 2, which we're going to sing a bit later in the service. In Psalm 2, verse 2, we read this. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. So we see that Psalm 2 stands as a prophecy which is being fulfilled on the pages here of Luke chapter 23. That the rulers of the earth gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. And as it happens, that's exactly how Luke wants us to approach and to understand this text. How do we know that? Well, Luke also writes a sequel to his gospel, doesn't he? A sequel called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And we'll look in more detail later at this text, but in Acts chapter 4, verse 26, Luke cites Psalm 2 to help us understand what is going on here before Pilate with Jesus. The rulers in Luke 23... Scripture wants us to understand, are gathered together against the Lord's Christ. And this is especially evident, isn't it, in the latter half of our passage, in chapter 23, verses 6 to 12. Have a look there. Where Pilate and Herod were formerly what? Before that day, they were enemies. And now their opposition to Jesus unites them as friends. Their friendship is cemented as they oppose a silently suffering Jesus. There was just a major conference that my uh, brother and brother-in-law attended in Louisville, Kentucky, called Together for the Gospel. Some of you might be aware of this as as a conference that takes place in the U.S. each year. 10,000-some people gathering there to hear about the Reformed faith and the gospel, gathered together for the gospel, Well, what we have here on the pages of Luke 23 is exactly the opposite. Gathered together against the gospel. These rulers who hold Jesus' fate in their hands, or at least so it seems on the surface of the story. Now, these details that were given in verses 6 to 12 in Luke 23 are not given to us by any of the other gospel writers, Matthew And Mark, don't give us these details of what happens exactly this way before Herod and before Pilate. These are uniquely from Luke. And it's quite possible here that we're actually seeing the fruit of what Luke told us he was doing when he opened his gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. You might turn there, keep a finger in Luke chapter 23. But if you look at Luke chapter 1, how does Luke open his gospel? He says... 
that, yes, other Gospels have been written about Jesus, but he's gone around and collected eyewitness testimony by means of careful research. He has ordered these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why? Luke chapter 1 verse 4, to increase the certainty that we have in the things that we have been told about Jesus. Well, how would Luke get this information if none of the other Gospels have it? Where would he get such information about the interaction that Jesus had with Herod, for example? Well, in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, we're told that Joanna, a woman who's the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, was among the followers of Jesus. So maybe Luke just maybe spoke to Joanna, who had access to the very household of Herod. Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we're told there's another figure named Manaen in the church at Antioch, who was one of Herod's lifelong friends. He'd grown up since a boy with Herod, and now he's a believer in the church in Antioch. Do you see what Luke's doing? He's drawing together these eyewitness accounts and giving us a further detailed window on what it was that happened there that day when Jesus stood and suffered before Pilate and Herod in order that we can have more certainty that, yes, first of all, these things happened, but more than that, that they happened for us, that Jesus suffered in this way for us. So these are a wonderful window into the suffering of Jesus for us. In fact, there's such a nice touch that some some scholars, some ministers who are skeptical of Luke at this point say, no, Luke has, he's, he's just, he's put it together just too nicely. It all sounds too nice. In fact, it all sounds like Psalm 2. It's as if Luke made it up so that it fits so perfectly. But of course, that's not the case at all, is it? Because the same Holy Spirit who inspired David to write Psalm 2 is the same spirit that worked through Luke to write his gospel and therefore helps us to connect the dots so that we can understand the suffering of our Lord under Pontius Pilate and Herod just here. So let's read and reflect on verses 1 to 12 a bit further with Psalm 2 in mind. And as we do so, I want us in particular to come away with three aspects from this text, which I hope will be an encouragement to us in our faith. First of all, I hope that we will be spurred as we understand this text to cling with more certainty and with more love to our suffering Savior. Secondly, I want us to comprehend, that is to understand more deeply, that our Lord is sovereign even over suffering. So to cling with certainty to the Lord Jesus and with love, to comprehend that God is sovereign over suffering, and finally, I hope that we will leave this morning better able to continue to be followers of Jesus, to continue with tenacity, to hold on as followers of the way of Jesus. Well, let's look again at the text, and let us see there the shape and the extent of the humiliation of our suffering Savior in verses 1 to 12. In verses 1 to 5, we hear the accusations piling up against Jesus, don't we? Look at verse 1. Having just brought Jesus to Pilate, in verse 1 there, the whole company of Jewish leaders begins to accuse him, in verse 2. They charge him with what? With leading their nation astray. How has he done so? Jesus, they allege, has prohibited the paying of taxes, the giving of tribute to Caesar, the Roman emperor. 
And even worse than that, he has set himself up as the Messiah, that is, the Christ, the Anointed One. And just so that Pilate understands how serious a charge this is, what a serious accusation it is they're making, they help him by using terms he can understand. Christ, they tell him, means king. This Jesus isn't only preventing taxes going to Caesar, he's setting himself up as Caesar's equal. In fact, as one who is a king to be obeyed rather than Caesar. These are political charges being levied by the Jewish leaders before Pilate, the Roman ruler of Palestine. They are political charges and they're serious ones, calibrated to get his attention. And yet, after an initial questioning by Pilate in verse 3, he's not taking the bait. Verse 4, he says he just doesn't see it. I find no guilt in this man, he says. But in verse 5, what do they do? They renew their accusations with urgency. And then they let drop this ominous extra detail, don't they? That Jesus, who's stirring up the people, is connected to Galilee. He's come even from Galilee. That is, from where other zealots and troublemakers have hailed in the past. Well, this catches Pilate's attention, doesn't it? And in verses 6 and by verse 7, then, his response, hearing that Galilee is in the picture, that Jesus is from Galilee, is to try to fob this off onto someone else. Galilee, he says, well, that means he falls under Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happens to be in town, in Jerusalem, just at that very moment. So Jesus is sent over to Herod, the Jewish ruler who is authorized by Rome to rule in the area, including Galilee in the north. Well, Herod is quite excited, isn't he, in verse 8, at the chance to see Jesus because he's heard so much about him. And what is it that Herod really wants to see? He really wants to see some sign, some miraculous deed. But Jesus doesn't play the part for Herod. Jesus is silent. In fact, he's as silent as a sheep before this Roman client king, Shearer. And in verse 9, we're told that he opens not his mouth. But the Jewish accusers are still there. They followed him. They're still standing by, and they are more incensed than ever. And in their vehemence, in verse 10, together derision and contempt, they join with Herod and his soldiers, so that verses 10 and 11 give us a picture of complete humiliation and hatred as Jesus is mocked, scorned, beaten, humiliated, and sent back to Pilate. So what do we see then in this text laid before us about our Savior? We see that Jesus has already been beaten He's subject to false accusations. Jesus has submitted himself to sinful human jurisdiction. He stands silently by and submits himself to Pilate and Herod. Jesus submits himself to mockery. We see a Jesus who willingly is preparing himself to face judgment and death, even the death of a cross. And we see a Jesus who is doing all of these things, embracing all of this suffering willingly. Why? For the sake of his people. For the sake of you and for me. Jesus suffers silently before these rulers. 
Question 38 of the Heidelberg Catechism, another wonderful summary of what it is that we believe, asks this. Why did Jesus suffer under Pontius Pilate as a judge? Answer, so that he, being innocent, might be condemned by the temporal judge, that earthly ruler, and thereby deliver us from the severe judgment of God, the heavenly judge, to which we were otherwise exposed. Do you see what that helps us catch from this passage? That Jesus willingly submits himself to judgment. He willingly suffers before Pilate and Herod. Why? So that you and so that I do not have to stand in humiliation before the very judgment throne of the God who is holy and who made you and me, and before whom we stand as sinners, otherwise condemned to judgment. Jesus takes our place, even as he stands before the tribunal of Pilate. John Calvin says of this passage in Luke's Gospel, So then the Son of God stood as a criminal before a mortal man, and there permitted himself to be accused and condemned, that we may stand boldly before God. For if we recollect how dreadful the judgment seat of God is, and that we could never have been acquitted there unless Christ had been pronounced to be guilty on earth, we shall never be ashamed of glorying in his chains. Again, whenever we hear, now catch this, what Calvin says, whenever we hear that Christ stood before Pilate, a sad and dejected countenance, let us draw from it grounds of confidence and assurance that relying on Jesus as our intercessor, we may come into the presence of God with joy and alacrity. That we rush to the Lord's presence, not as those coming before a judge who will condemn us, though we deserve to be condemned, but that we draw near to God even now, even this morning, even in our prayers, with great joy, assurance, and confidence, knowing that Jesus suffered in our place. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. So Luke holds out to us this detailed portrait of our Savior's humiliation. Why? In order that we might cling to him with more certainty and with more love this morning. Brothers and sisters, I want you to catch this this morning. It is a basic truth, but it is a beautiful truth that we need to let seep into our hearts and minds. Will you, again this morning, reach out and take hold of Jesus by faith? Jesus, who was humiliated, who sinless though he was, submitted himself and suffered in our place so that we as sinners might be exalted. Will you cling with more confidence, with more certainty to this one whose very shame is your glory? Will you, with great love and joy, hold fast to the Lord Jesus? The rulers of the earth gathered against Jesus, and he was humiliated. But it was in our place, and his judgment, his humiliation, was for you, was for me. Man of sorrows, what a name, and what a great Savior we have.
So we need to cling to him, cling to him ever more strongly with faith and love. But we also need to comprehend something more deeply. We need to understand something, and that's our second point this morning. In Luke 23, Jesus is humiliated as the Lord's anointed. We see that Luke's emphasis here is very clearly on the fact that the rulers are gathering against the Lord's Christ. And we recall then Psalm 2. And this is exactly what Luke wants us to have in mind. I mentioned earlier that in Acts chapter 4, he seals this for us. Would you keep a finger in Luke 23 and flip over to Acts chapter 4? In Acts chapter 4, Luke makes it crystal clear that this is how he is, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, interpreting what it is that Jesus' suffering under Pilate and Herod means for us. Not just that it happened this way, but that it has a deeper meaning we must understand, we must comprehend. In Acts chapter 4, verse 23 and following, we read this. The apostles have been imprisoned and now they're released. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you see what Luke does there? Do you see how Acts chapter 4 helps interpret for us Luke chapter 23? Precisely by pointing us to Psalm 2 as that framework to read it with. In verse 27 of Acts chapter 4 that we just read, Pilate and Herod, the Gentiles and Jews, Psalm 2 style, are gathered together against the Lord's holy anointed servant Jesus. They beat him, they mock him, they humiliate him, they crucify him. But, verse 28, what are we told? When they had done their worst, they had still only done whatever the Lord's hand and plan had predestined to take place. In other words, this is not, as Luke writes it for us, either in his gospel or in Acts, this is not some after-the-fact spin on what happened to Jesus, that tragically he thought he was a savior, but then he suffered at the hands of the rulers and was killed upon the cross, and that was the end of the story, that it all got out of control. No, no, Scripture tells us, that's not the meaning of what happened. Rather, we're meant to see that even as Jesus suffered, even as he approached the crucifixion, he was submitting himself to the Lord's sovereign 
plan. We have to understand, we have to comprehend that our Lord is sovereign even over suffering. All suffering. But especially the suffering that comes when his people suffer for his name. Even Jesus' suffering here in Luke chapter 23 was not somehow outside the plan of God. It didn't happen by accident. It wasn't an unseen tragedy. It all unfolded according to the sovereign predestined plan of our Lord. Our Lord is one who is sovereign in suffering. He was sovereign over the suffering of Jesus in his passion and death. And he's sovereign, sovereign rather, over our suffering, over our humiliation, over the opposition that we will face as well as we seek to be those who are faithful in bearing the name of the Lord Jesus. So not only do we cling to him with certainty and with love, but we've got to understand, and we've got to seek to understand this more deeply as we grow as Christians, that our Lord is one who is sovereign. Parents, you have got to teach this to your children to help them understand what it means to say that our Lord is sovereign, that he is the king, even over suffering, so that when they face opposition... Their faith does not crumble in its face. Brothers and sisters, we have got to encourage one another to seek the scriptures together, to grow in our understanding of this truth of our Lord's sovereignty, so that we, as we face perhaps more and more opposition for our Christian faith in our own time, in our own workplaces, even amongst unbelievers in our own families, that we too understand, not just in our heads, but in our very hearts and souls, that our Lord is one who is sovereign over any suffering, over any opposition that we might face for the sake of Christ. Well, thirdly, we come to this point of understanding that if we are those who want to continue day after day, to follow Jesus in the way that he has laid out before us in the Christian life. We are given great encouragement in this text. We cling to him with confidence and love. We comprehend that our Lord is sovereign even over suffering. And we continue with endurance along that way marked out for us, which is a way of suffering. The Christian life that you have embraced, if you are a follower of Jesus, is a way marked by suffering. And we need to understand that, and we need to expect that. As we reflect then on Luke chapter 23, in the larger context of Luke's gospel, as well as Luke and Acts, we see again and again, don't we, on those pages, that there is humiliation, mockery, Opposition in store for those who take the name of Jesus. We too will face accusations. We will be subject to various earthly rulers and jurisdictions. And most of those will not be righteous and just. Our humiliation, even if it should ever, inconceivable as it seems to say on a morning like this, even if it should ever lead us to the point of death for the sake of Christ. Our humiliation, of course, is different 
from that of Jesus, isn't it? Because our humiliation can never be redemptive. Why is that? Because we are not Jesus. We are not God and man. We are not the Savior. And so Jesus suffered uniquely that he might redeem us for himself. But our suffering is a suffering in imitation of our Savior. We are being conformed to his likeness even as we suffer. As opposition mounts against Christians in an increasingly pagan and hostile culture, we will feel more and more the sting of humiliation. How will we respond? How will we encourage one another along the way? For most of us, this isn't yet, I don't think, a significant part of our day-to-day experience. We might face occasional scorn from friends or family, but we're not openly accused. We're not dragged before judges. We're not beaten for our faith or brought to trial. Now, some of you, some of you come from parts of the world where that is the case, where you may well have family or friends who live in a place where they have faced physical, tangible opposition for their faith in the Lord Jesus. And so you know, perhaps, either by experience or by connection to those who have had it, a bit more than many of us do, what that might be like. But what if we do? What if we do increasingly face this kind of opposition? Are we prepared to continue as followers of the way of Jesus? Well, recently, one Christian writer has considered this question about the pressures that increasingly are on the Christian life in our culture, where our loyalty to King Jesus is frequently challenged and comes into conflict more and more with our other loyalties and responsibilities to government and the rest. And this writer gives us two uh, stories, two scenarios to think with, and we'll close with these this morning. The opening story he brings before us is a familiar one, perhaps, from church history. It's the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp, an ancient Christian bishop who lived in the second century. You may know this story, but if you don't, Polycarp was one who, having lived his life as a, as a minister of the Christian gospel, traveling around Asia Minor, was dragged in his old age into a stadium before a violent crowd And there before a Roman magistrate, he was implored to renounce his faith. Renounce his faith and all would be well. The Roman magistrate stood there pleading with Polycarp, just be sensible. What could be worth this kind of suffering, really? Just swear allegiance, Polycarp, to the Caesar. Just burn some incense and say a prayer to him. Come on. Just renounce your faith, turn your back at least for a moment on your fellow brothers and sisters. Be sensible, man, and avoid suffering that waits for you. Polycarp's response now is famous. Maybe you know it. As he stood there being humiliated before a stadium full of onlookers, he said this, For eighty and six years have I been his servant, And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And so Polycarp refused. He clung to his Lord faithfully and continued to be a follower of the way. 
Well, that same author asks us to consider just for a moment, what would have happened if the proconsul, that Roman ruler, had taken a slightly different tack with Polycarp? What if he had not asked him to renounce his faith in Christ completely, but instead he just persuaded him, look, you can still hold on to Jesus as a God, but just also embrace the spirit of the age, Polycarp. Come on, swear allegiance to the spirit of the Caesars. It doesn't have to be in conflict. Can't you, can't you join that together with what it is that you believe? What's the problem? What if he had taken that approach? Could Polycarp have done even that? Would it have been possible for him to go just that far to avoid suffering by towing the idolatrous party line of the civil religion of his day, the pluralism of his day? Just tone down that exclusive claim that King Jesus is the only way to salvation. Just embrace Roman values, Polycarp. Come on. Well, what what would his answer have been? We know. We know that he still would have refused. Polycarp would certainly not have done even that because he was a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus, the true and only king. Well, the same author closes his consideration with a second illustration, and this will be our final for the day. This one strikes a bit closer to home, and one that you may well know about more than I do, having not yet been in the UK when this happened. But our author writes about, in 2011, how the British High Court declared that the Derby City Council had the authority to deny the request of a Christian couple to foster a child on the grounds that they might instill in that child negative attitudes towards homosexuality. And so they were refused. Now, the same author points out, this is only one of many instances, isn't it? We could point to others in the news recently. Judges, healthcare workers, who have lost their jobs simply for being faithful to the Lord Jesus. And suddenly it doesn't seem so inconceivable that this kind of opposition might be that which we face in the future. So how will we respond? Will we continue with tenacity? Well, if we remember Luke 23, and if we remember our suffering Savior, who stood there and was judged in our place, then we cling to him and we continue with great confidence, with great faith, We need to teach this to our families. We need to encourage one another to embrace the Lord Jesus in these ways. We have before us on the pages of Luke 23 a suffering Savior. Will you embrace him by faith yet again this morning? Let's pray together.